0: The New Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2. I will read the first 16 verses. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, O woman, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does the good, the Jew first and Also, the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish, uh, without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men and women by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have the words of life. Where else shall we go? And so we turn to you this day and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, which caused these words of the book of Romans to be inspired, that we would be illuminated by that self-same spirit, that we would hear what it is that you would have us know this day, and that our wills would be activated to move in the right direction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've hung around churches a while, you've heard about God's law and God's grace. And if you've hung around churches long enough, you know that we are saved by God's grace and not by keeping God's law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So, if we are saved by God's grace and not by our works, if we are saved by God's grace and not by our good deeds or, or, or by our law-abiding behavior, why is there so much talk about good deeds and law-abiding behavior in churches? If we're saved by God's grace and not by our works, what is the purpose of God's law for Christians? And what role do good deeds and law-abiding behavior play in the Christian life? Those are the big questions that I want to answer this morning in this sermon. But before we attack the big questions on what the function of God's law is in the life of Christians, I want to begin with the Gospel, with the distinction between God's grace and our works, and I want to illustrate that difference with a rambling parable from real life. As soon as this second service is over, I am not going to greet you in the back of the sanctuary because I will be racing into Philadelphia to see the Pennsylvania Ballet perform Swan Lake at the Academy of Music. Now, some of the Eagle fans are having flashes of jealousy right now because you're thinking, why did I think of that? I mean, the Super Bowl's over. There's nothing to do on Sunday afternoon. I wish I, too, had thought of the ballet. Now, to see the ballet, you need a ticket. You can purchase the ticket with your hard-earned money, or you can receive the ticket as a gift from someone who used their hard-earned money to purchase the ticket for you. But either way, to see the ballet... You have to have a ticket. Now if I were Jesus, I would say something like, the Kingdom of God is like the Pennsylvania Ballet. And the New Jerusalem is like the Academy of Music. Only those with a ticket will be admitted. And so the question becomes, what's the price of admission to the Kingdom of God? How much will a ticket to the New Jerusalem set me back? The Westminster Larger Catechism put the question this way, what does God require of human beings? And the answer that we read together was, God requires human beings to obey His revealed will. We read, the moral law is the declaration of God's will for humanity, directing and binding every human being to conform to and obey it personally completely and perpetually. The moral law applies to the whole human, body and soul, and includes the performance of all those obligations to God and to our fellow humans to be holy and righteous. And then, in the next sentence, we find where the rubber hits the road. The final sentence And the answer to question number 93, it's in your bulletin, you can consult this a little bit later, is where we find out who gets into the Academy of Music and who will be left sitting on the curb. We read, God promised life for keeping the moral law and threatened death for disobeying it. Now when you read that, if you're even halfway honest about how you've lived your life, you'll be shaking your head and saying, Well, it looks like I won't be seeing the Pennsylvania Ballet anytime soon. Because I haven't done such a good job of keeping the moral law, certainly not perpetually and completely and personally, certainly not with body and soul. It is an expensive ticket. Now, some of you might be looking for a loophole. Some of you might be thinking that maybe the Westminster Larger Catechism misinterpreted Scripture. So let's take a look at the Scripture references for the last sentence to the answer to question 93. The first reference is from Romans 10.5. Check this on your own, where we read, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live. The larger catechism explains this as God promised life for keeping the moral law. So that's an accurate exposition of Romans 10.5. And the second scripture reference is Galatians 3.10-11 where we read, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. From this, the larger catechism concludes that we must follow the moral law completely and perpetually, and that God threatens death for disobeying the moral law. And that is a fair exposition of what Scripture teaches, and so I don't think the Westminster larger catechism made a mistake on this point which brings us to a time of a little bit of truth-telling. I need you to know that I, your pastor, have not kept the moral law. I have not kept it completely and perpetually, and I have not kept it body and soul. Now, perhaps you're thinking, oh, Maybe the pastor didn't keep the moral law when he was young and wild, but he's changed his ways. He knows better now. And surely God has a statute of limitations, and the sins of our youth won't be counted against us. For those of you who had those thoughts, I appreciate your kindness. And I'll call you anytime I need money for bail. But that defense has two problems. Problem number one, the Bible says nothing about a statute of limitations. We are accountable for every thought, word, and deed of our entire lives. You may give yourself a pass on what you did long ago, but God doesn't. And problem number two, the pastor didn't just break God's law when he was young. The pastor broke God's law last week. And they'll probably break it again before this day is over as I'm fighting traffic to get into Philadelphia. (laughs) And while I hope that all of you are doing better than I am in your walk with Jesus in your sanctification, I'm also guessing that some of you aren't. Because you see, the problem that we face as fallen humans is not individual sins The problems that we face as humans is our fallen human nature, our pervasively sinful nature. Our hearts are selfish. They are bent. Our flesh is always warring against the Spirit. And everyone in this room is in the same boat. And so I'm going to say it again. I feel like I've been saying it every week. None is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm going to keep repeating those verses from the book of Romans until we believe them instinctually. The truth of the Bible, the truth that is denied in virtually every sappy Hollywood movie and every inane Facebook meme, this truth, that none is righteous. Pope Francis, not him, Not Barack Obama, he's not righteous. Not Mahatma Gandhi, not Martin Luther King, not Billy Graham, not Oprah Winfrey, not even Jimmy Kimmel or your pastor. None is righteous. No, not one. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what scripture teaches. That is the human condition. And if you're sitting there thinking that the pastor's crazy, that if he thinks that you're a sinner, and the pastor's nuts, if he thinks that you're not righteous, then all I can say is that you are so deep in denial that you are willing to deny even that you're a human. So what's the upshot? The upshot is, no one gets to see the Pennsylvania Ballet. We're still in this extended power, by the way. No one gets to see the Pennsylvania Ballet, and no one gets into the Academy of Music. At least, no one if they're buying their own tickets. Because none of us can afford the tickets. By keeping the law, by paying our own way, no one will get to heaven. No matter how hard we work, we will not earn our way to heaven no matter how hard we try. We will not earn God's love and favor. That's the diagnosis of the gospel. That's the bad news that precedes the good news. So let me remind you of the good news. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 For in the Gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 For now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3, 21 and 22. All of which is to say that the gospel reveals that we can be saved. The gospel reveals that we can get into the Academy of Music and see the ballet by faith in Christ alone, separate from keeping the law of God. By faith in Jesus, we get the ticket that we couldn't buy on our own. And thus it is as... Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not the result of your labors, so that no one can boast. The price on the entry ticket to heaven is beyond our reach. The most righteous person who ever lived doesn't have enough righteousness in his bank account to buy it. But the ticket to heaven is given to us free of charge by faith in Jesus Christ. It is by God's grace, by God's gift that we are saved and not by our own efforts and by our own works. Do you get what's happening here? And I'm sorry if it seems like I'm repeating myself. But everything in this world Every law created by humans in every age, every grading system in every school, every business contract in every country says the exact opposite of what the Gospel says, and so sometimes we have to shout to be heard over the noise of the world. It is by grace we are saved. It is not by our efforts and by our works, and so no one may boast. I am right with God. I'm a son of God. I will spend eternity with God. I have my ticket. I will be led in the door. And I will see God's glory. But not because I had the money. Not because I did the work. Not because I'm wealthy or worthy. But because Jesus handed me the ticket. For free. And I grabbed that ticket and it saved my life. Are you holding on to a ticket that Jesus bought for you? Do you know how much Jesus paid for that ticket? He worked every minute of every day of His earthly life to buy you that ticket. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And if you want to understand how hard that is, I dare you to try to be sin free for 15 minutes. It will wear you out. Now imagine doing it for 33 years. He lived a perfect life, which earns the price of the ticket. But even more than that, even before He could give us a ticket that He had earned, He had to first pay off our debts. Because if He didn't pay our debts first, our creditors would demand that ticket and take it from us. So in addition to living a perfect life for us, Jesus also died on the cross and paid the price of our sins with His own agony and His own abandonment. It's a double gift. This gift of God's grace A double gift, Christ's record of perfect, sinless life given to us as a robe of righteousness that we can wear and Christ's forgiveness for every sin that we, in fact, have committed in this life. Why would anyone turn down that offer? All right, about 20 minutes ago, not that I'm counting, I said that this sermon would try to answer the question, if we're saved by grace and not by works, then what's the purpose of God's law for Christians and what role do good deeds and law-abiding behavior play in the Christian life? This is actually a question that the Reformers, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, thought a lot about because they believed that the Roman Catholic Church at that time had lost sight of God's grace and that it was too focused on God's law. For Roman Catholics at that time, getting to heaven required accumulating enough merits on the positive side of your ledger to offset any demerits that you might have on the negative side of your ledger. And when you died, if you were in the black, you went to heaven, but if you were still on the red, well, things wouldn't be so pleasant for you. To the reformers... That felt like salvation by works rather than salvation by God's grace, which left the Reformers with the question, what is the purpose of God's law if we're saved by God's grace? In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin names three ongoing purposes for God's moral law in the lives of Christians. The first purpose is to restrain evil in the world. God's law offers threats of divine retribution for injustice and for sin, and so God's law might restrain some people who might otherwise act badly. second purpose of the law is to act as a mirror, which shows us who we are and shows us our need for God's grace. Calvin writes, the law is a kind of mirror And in a mirror we discover every stain upon our face. So in the law we first behold our impotence, then in consequence of it our iniquity, and finally the curse as a consequence of both. By impotence, Calvin means that the law holds up such a high standard that we realize that we actually are incapable of meeting it. By iniquity, Calvin means that when we compare our lives against God's standard, we realize that we fall short. And by the curse, Calvin means the wrath of God which is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. As I've said before, the Gospel gives a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a prescription for what ails all humankind. The law, as a mirror, provides the diagnosis, all have sinned that fall short of the glory of God, and the prognosis that if left untended to, sin will incur God's wrath. And thus we see that the law is an indispensable part of the gospel. It is the law which drives us to Christ which brings us to the mercy of God. If we remain unaware of the condition of our spiritual health, health, we never go looking for help. Think of the moral law as a series of medical tests that reveal the true condition of the health of your heart. The law is a mirror that shows us who we are inside. But while the law gives us a diagnosis and a prognosis. It doesn't give us the prescription, the cure for what ails us. And that's where we need the rest of the gospel to complete the story. That's where we need the atoning cross and the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. The third purpose of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. While the law cannot save us, it does give us marching orders once we have been saved. When we follow God's law, our lives display mercy and justice and kindness and self-control. If we follow God's law, we love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I think John Calvin was a very clever fellow. And so, I like his three purposes for the moral law, but I'd like to add a fourth, and this one from another JC, not John Calvin, but Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. I think another purpose of the moral law is to bring glory to God. When we keep God's law, it brings honor and glory to God. Yes, the law will never save us. Yes, no one will keep the law perfectly. But every time we do keep God's law, in small things and in big things, we make our lives and our world just a little bit better, and we bring glory to God. It's a grave mistake To place our hope and trust in keeping God's law for our own salvation, we won't be saved by being good because none of us are good enough. It is also a grave mistake to place our hope and trust in keeping God's law for the redemption of the world. Because the brokenness of this world is far greater than we can undo. But that doesn't mean we should neglect God's law. That doesn't mean that keeping God's law isn't helpful every single time we do. And we should live with justice and kindness in all that we do in the name of Christ to the glory of God. Not because it makes us feel good, not because it's going to save the world, but because it's God's law. Because it's the right thing to do. Because it brings glory to God, the law giver. Now I mentioned a few weeks ago that there are two common churchy errors that miss the truth of the gospel with regard to the law. The first and most common error is the error of antinomianism. Antinomianism throws the law out the window and it says, oh, anything goes. God loves me. God is merciful. He doesn't really care how I live my life. That lie is rejected by Jesus on almost every page of the four Gospels. And the other error is legalism, which puts its trust in moral perfection and yokes itself to an unbearable burden of good works and more good works. The legalist tries to save himself through his own efforts. And that lie is rejected by the Apostle Paul on almost every page of the 13 Pauline epistles. As followers of Jesus Christ, we don't throw out the law, but neither do we place our trust in the law. In the Gospel, we recognize that God's law is eternal. It doesn't change and that it reveals the condition of our hearts, and it reveals God's intention for how we should live our lives. And then, having read and understood God's law, and having allowed it to hold up a mirror for us regarding the condition of our hearts, we then fly to Christ, who has met The demands of the law, who has lived the life that we should have lived, and who has paid the penalty for our sins. So, here in closing is my advice to my friends in Christ. Keep the law as best as you can, but trust in Christ for your salvation. Keep working to improve yourself and to repair this beautiful world, but Don't be fooled into thinking that by your efforts, no matter how heroic, that you're either going to save yourself or the world. There is only one Savior, and his name is Jesus, and to him be all glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we do honor you and we bless your name, Lord Jesus. We worship you as our prophet, priest, and king. We thank you that your eternal word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray that we would walk in that light this day and every day. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit we would be ever more trained to walk in that way habitually. We pray that your sanctifying work would continue to unfold in our lives and that we would bring more glory and more honor to you every day as we more and more look like Jesus. But in all of that, I pray that we would never become proud or self-sufficient. And I pray that we would every day cast ourselves at the feet of the cross and plead the mercy of Christ. For in him alone is hope and salvation. Lord Jesus, you paid the price. You paid it all. And for that, you have received a name that is above every name, that that your name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that you are God and King. Lord, I pray this day that you give us faith to claim and to hold on to and to trust in those truths of the Scripture. I pray that you might give us faith, saving faith in you and in the work of the cross. And we ask these things in your powerful name. Amen. 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 All right, so